0: Will be in verses nine and ten, and honestly, probably just nine. <laughs> There's a, a lot to, to consider uh, there in and of itself. So Romans chapter twelve, verse nine will be our primary passage. My name's Jason. I serve as one of the elders here. I love getting to open up God's word with you. So I pray that's what we will what we will do today as we continue to navigate this text. We'll take a break ne- starting next week uh, to consider. Uh, the incarnation of the son of god for advent season uh, over four weeks and we'll pick up romans again uh in the new year so for those of you ready for a little romans breather you're going to get one for a little bit and then full speed ahead by god's grace we'll finish it in 2024 or 2023 that's is that next year that's next year yeah 2023 um the the text says let love be genuine abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. A few people, I think, would argue that love is really, really important and that love is really critical to what it means to be a human being, Love, I think, is widely regarded as our central moral ethic, which I think essentially means that no matter what your faith, your background, or your lack of faith or lack of religion, whether you're a Christ, I think that's something we are all generally within our particular culture and time and place in history pretty well attuned to. But real love uh, never comes easy. Have you ever noticed this? That something always seems to get in the way of the simplicity or the beauty of love. Otherwise, the world, we often fail more loving place. Because isn't it interesting? We all agree on love, but we often fail to love. Think about that. We all agree on love, but we often fail at love. No matter your background, your religion, your creed, your faith, whether or not you know and follow Jesus, we agree on love, but we often fail to love. Why? Well, I think there's a few things underneath this discord. When we talk about love, we're not always talking about the same thing, are we? I think in general, we kind of maybe are in the same stadium, if you will, but we're all in very different seats or places or have different perspectives of what that is. We define love differently, and we love differently. Not only so, but in our language of our text today, love is not always genuine. Love is not always consistent. Often our loves, regardless of how we define them, even when you push them a little bit or or peel back the layers of motivation or understanding, they're actually pretty self-serving. We often lack courage or honesty when we love. We, We lack a healthy view of love because we've not been loved well by those who were supposed to love us best. Perhaps more than anything else, I think that we fail to love, especially in the way that Jesus describes love, is because we're afraid or fearful. The English uh, writer C.S. Lewis said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. He continues, if you want to make sure of play around hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglement. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. He says, it will not be broken, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. He says, to love is to be vulnerable. What Lewis is saying, I think, is that love is really costly, and I think we all instinctively know this and feel this. And that cost exposes then a fear, and that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about that cost. I want to talk about that fear. I want to talk about that strange relationship, that kind of affection. You see, I think we all agree on love, but fail to love because it's really costly, especially the brand of love that Jesus prescribes through the Apostle Paul in our text today. Paul tells us this. Hear it again, Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Taking our cue from this passage, particularly verse 9, which centers us on love and really becomes a guiding light for the rest of chapter 12, here's how we'll organize our time. Love without hypocrisy, love with truth, and love in the flesh. So, love without hypocrisy, love with truth, and love in the flesh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, left to ourselves, we're really unclear about what love is, um, and certainly, regardless of how we understand it, we're unable to carry it out. And so I pray for myself, I pray for my friends, that through Your Word, would You give us a right view of love. Help us to see it as You have designed it, as, as You inhabit it, because the Scriptures tell us that God is love. And so I pray, Father, that as that Word takes on flesh and definition, would You, would you help us to not grow defensive over perhaps uh, a definition that's comfortable for us, over a lifestyle of love or a lack thereof that feels, uh, sister and brother's, less costly? Would you even expose the fears that show up in my sister and brother's hearts and in my own heart, Father? And as you clarify what love is, would you embolden us as a people to actually love each other, to actually love our neighbors, to ultimately love you, We ask for your help because this is beyond our ability. We have not just been saved by grace, but to obey the words of Jesus, we need grace. And so empower us, fill us with your Spirit, help us to be responsive to your Word, for your glory and our good, we ask in Jesus. Talking a lot about uh, how we are a body of Christ, or we are the body of Christ. And in particular, what that means is that you and I have all been given different gifts and that sort of like Captain Planet, when our powers combine, right, we're able to experience and demonstrate something else. If you don't know what Captain Planet is, like, you're wrong. Um, you're not a good millennial, I guess. We grew up on that stuff. Anyway, it's what, when we're together, we're actually meant to become and be something that we can't be on our own. And very specifically… That that we realize that individually we have these different gifts that we contribute to the body of Christ and together to the world, to the watching world. This is why the Scriptures call us as a people the body of Christ. We don't have the same callings, the same abilities, but we have all been blessed to bless others. You have not been blessed just to enrich your life, but to be an enriching force and power in the lives of your brothers and sisters, and, and especially in the world as Jesus brings his kingdom to bear here and now. But not only so, what Paul will continue to tell us is that it's come from the same grace and for the same purpose to use all of these different gifts to bless each other. That's what verses 6 through 8 have been about. And now when we get to verse 9, Paul shifts from these unique or different roles that you may or may not have, that your brother or sister may or may not have, that we together get to emulate and demonstrate something more holistic about who Jesus is. Now he begins to explain what every Christian does. And what we all do and what we are all together individually as well as a unit. And what is the centerpiece of that unifying moment, if you will, is love. That we all have love. That we all are supposed to love. Paul does this in a few places. He moves from lists lists of gifts, if you will, to centering it all on love. He does it in both 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. Paul lists a diversity of gifts into different callings that everyone has, but then this unity of love is where he moves after that. See, after talking about gifts like miracles and healing and prophecy, which maybe some have and some don't, Paul then says to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 12, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, what does he say? I'm a clanging gong, or rather a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Love is a central and unifying power of any ability, which means that if we haven't loved in our serving, then the virtue of that service has been stripped away. Experience this, haven't we? Someone who serves in an arrogant way, they're using gifts, but they're doing it to power up on people, not with a demonstration or a posture of humility and love, but a way of using their gifts in a way of getting their own way. See, that's especially true in the church. Our gifts, these various and different things, are meant to foster unity and affection, not competition and jealousy. See, I know that love is ruling my life. If I see your gift and I get excited about it, not jealous for it. Or I go, wow, you do something in such a beautiful way, that tells me something about Jesus. That, that reminds me of his grace and his power, not, man, I wish I could do that, right? Or someone gets something and I go, ah, that's the kind of blessing that I wanted in my life. So instead of celebrating, or what Paul says, rejoicing with those who rejoice, I get jealous of those who rejoice. I want to be in competition with them. This is why Instagram is a wild place for a follower of Jesus, because it is built on competition and comparison and judgment, right? There's something that shows up in me that doesn't just celebrate with those who are celebrating. I'm like, I bet they use a filter on that. I bet if you like pulled back the frame, like their life isn't that great, right? We get like real snappy and judgy. It just says, Paul does a similar thing when he writes to the church in Ephesus, after telling them, uh, telling them that some have been gifted to be prophets and evangelists and teachers and shepherds, he says this in Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, of all the true things that you and I might say it, in our various gifts, in our various ways, everything that we're supposed to say or everything that God would have us say is meant to be anchored in love and to spring from love. In other words, discipleship is not catching someone in sin and going, ah, I gotcha, now I can tell you the truth. No, loving somebody and and discipleship is about seeing someone in sin and drawing close to them, grieving with them and pointing them to Christ, to drawing near to them the way that God in Christ has drawn near to us. This is how maturity shows up. It's through love. Love is the thing that makes us more like Jesus. So so Paul is telling us something really powerful here, is that love grows people more than gifts. Love grows people more than gifts. Think about it. You might remember a preacher's one-liner for a minute, and it might even help you understand God a little bit better. But when someone loves you well, it reorients your life. Something that's just a tweetable moment, right? Something that's just a nice moment in time is great. It's helpful. It certainly can shape our intellect. But love grows people more than gifts always. See, in the local church, love then is the centerpiece or the power of all of our service. We are constantly then checking our motivations, right? Not because we're fearful we might do something wrong, but because that's the place through which we use our gifts. We use our gifts through our love for one another. See, if someone heals or preaches or financially supports but doesn't love you, their gift is of little consequence in the spiritual realm. This is what Paul is getting at, not only here in Romans but in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians as well. You might have a good story to tell. You might have a big budget, big building, but without love, nothing matters in God's economy. Nothing. Here's how Paul explains it. Look again at the very beginning of Romans 12 verse 9. It says, let love be genuine. Let it be genuine. The word for love here is the word agape. It's one of many common words used in the Greek language that are translated into the single word that we use in English, love. There's eros and philea and storge and philatia and, and, and zinnia. All of these explain different forms and shapes of love, but agape is different. Before the writings of the New Testament, in fact, agape was of little consequence in Greek culture. They didn't use it very often. It was less common than the other forms of love. But biblical writers, as they were so good at doing, they embraced this word, they attached it to God, so to speak, and since then, the word morphed into conveying this idea which is both sacrificial and unconditional. Marvedon explains that agape's application to God emphasized his being able to give Love wisely, thoroughly, came to mean or came to mean. So agape is intelligent rather than sentimental. Agape is sacrificial rather than selfish. It's unconditional rather than transactional. All of this meaning then is contained within Paul's phrase, let love be genuine. He says, Let agape be genuine, or really, because there's no verb in this phrase, and love comes with a direct article. He's literally saying, the love of unhypocritical. The love unhypocritical. Agape love is is meant to be a love which is free from hypocrisy. In the Bible, though, hypocrisy means something, I think, much more precise than we often think about. In the Bible, hypocrisy is all about alignment with God's will, both within myself and also outwardly. So my inward life and my visible life. It's not just about having authenticity of being true inwardly and outwardly. It's both of those things being in line with the will of God. This is what the rest of the chapter is all about, what it means, what it looks like to love without hypocrisy. So the first thing Paul tells us about unhypocritical love is that it is inseparable from the truth. Look at the latter half, the second portion of verse 9. It says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So let love be genuine. What's that look like? Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. As we mentioned, one of the reasons I think that we agree on love but fail to love is because we don't define love clearly. Often love and that genuine love is about following the inclinations of our hearts and our own desires. Love, genuine or genuine love is about what is genuine to me. But the scriptures contest this perspective in so many different ways. One day Jesus told a group of religious leaders… Matthew chapter 23, he said, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites,' he says, "'for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean.'" He was saying what? "'Let love be genuine.'" seek harmony between your, between your interior life and your exterior life, but notice it's not just about alignment. It's not just saying let your, your inside self be known outside, but what, what more precisely? It's also about purification. Cleansing needs to happen from the inside out. Biblically, being genuine or freed from hypocrisy is not simply about being true to our inward self. Loving without hypocrisy requires repentance, purification, and healing. In other words, biblically, hypocrisy is not about betraying yourself. It's about betraying God. Hypocrisy is not about betraying yourself. It's about betraying God. I I think that's critical for us to understand in our day. This is uncommon and unpopular, to be sure. Being genuine is about aligning ourselves with God, not seeking a God or friends or loves that align with us. In Romans, then, Paul is following the teachings of Jesus The apostle is saying something very different from our prevailing cultural ideal. Specifically, he's telling us that agape, or love, hates evil. And love is supposed to be fixated, or really what he says, glued to what is good. It's a wonderful image. It's fashioned to it. Evil and goodness are not relative ideas. These are not constructions of our cultural moment. These are reflections of God's character and holiness. So a love without hypocrisy… Hypocrisy manifests in abhorring what is contrary to God's character and holding fast to what he calls good. This is how we know we're having a genuine love, is I love what he loves and I hate what he hates. I hate evil and I cling to, I glue myself to what is good. God hates evil. Uncomfortable thought, but it's complete with his love. In fact, the Psalms even tell us that his hatred goes beyond action to even the people who commit evil. It's an uncomfortable truth. Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6 says, For you are not, rather, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy. That's a lot. That's a lot to weigh on our souls and to consider God's response to evil and evildoers. See, God hates evil. He hates evildoers because they destroy what he loves it's a response within his own character his love would be hypocritical if he didn't defend execute justice justice and even seek to destroy evil because evil destroys what he loves perhaps one of the reasons we don't hate evil like god does is because we don't remember what god sees or know what god knows in other words, when he sees evil, something happens in him. And a lot of times when we see evil, we're like, ah, oh, it's just the way things are. Ah, oh, that's too bad for them. Right? There's this sort of like spirit within us that is not indignant when we see what is broken, when we see what is evil and contrary to his character. We forget that evil destroys God's good world and works against his holy will. In other words, we don't, have, we don't see with the eyes of faith, we just see what is before us and we just go, I sure hope they can figure that out. I hope somebody responds to that. See, to be idle in the face of what is evil is to fail to love without hypocrisy because that betrays God. God hates evil. He hates the evil that happens to you, but he also hates the evil that shows up anywhere. That's what's really hard. One, One scholar has said that the old problem of evil is how could a good and loving God exist when evil does too. He says, but the new problem of evil is that I don't care about evil until it smacks me in the face. I don't care about something that's broken until it breaks me or hurts me. God's not like that. Whatever God loves, if something goes at that, he's like, nope. That's mine. I love that. I love them. Not only so, but God is good. And so when we say that God is good, we're saying that the definition of goodness flows from his character. We don't look at good things and say, well, they, they came from God, so God must be good. We, we look at and what comes. See, when a rich young man came to Jesus and called him good teacher, here's how Jesus wryly responds. It's wonderful. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except who God alone. Theologically speaking, goodness is one of God's moral attributes. He is the highest good of all that is good. It reflects His quality, His his character. Theologian Leo Burkhoff says that God is the fountain of all good. If something is good, it came from Him. It reflects His character, reflects His quality. When we hold fast to what is good, then what are we doing? We're clinging to God. We're gluing ourselves to Him we are clinging to anything and everything that reflects His quality, His character. If we want to know if something is good, we must consider it alongside God Himself and say, is that like God? Is that who He is? Is that from Him? Now I'm going to cling to it. And if it's not, I won't. Cling to what is good. To love without hypocrisy is to do the good, to cherish the good, to protect the good, to surrender to the good and allow ourselves to be glued to whatever reflects his image. Loving without hypocrisy means loving with truth, with truth and an understanding of evil and of good. It, it means hating what is evil. It means clinging to what is good. Another reason we uh, agree rather with love but we fail to love is because we don't define evil and good. So, we don't define love But then we also don't define evil and good the way that we should. In fact, more to the point, we don't define them at all. It's not only that we don't define them rightly, we try to avoid defining evil and good in general. We presume good, we often ignore evil until it destroys something that we love, namely ourselves. Love then has become a sort of live and let live edict. Certainly there is this natural impulse, I think, that we all have to care for the marginalized or oppressed or suffering, something which is perfectly in line with the heart of God. But have you ever noticed, even within our political cycle, on love war about who, but we fail to love. So we agree that generally speaking that's a good idea, but who should be loved and who should receive that and who should we treat this way? We agree on love, but we fail to love. See, without a clear understanding of truth and evil and good, perhaps unwittingly that what begins to happen is that we cling to evil and we hate what's good. We do the opposite. In other words, I think in the name of love, we reject truth. Perhaps the most poignant way that this shows up in our cultural moment is through the mantra, love is love. It's something that I think we as a Christian community need to be very thoughtful about. Not, not either accepting it very quickly or rejecting it really quickly as something that's a product of the culture or something that is something completely in line with the heart of God. Because the heart behind that ideal, that love is love, is that every human being should be able to choose who they love and how they love. And at first blush, this sounds noble, and it reflects the heart of God's generosity. But I think it ultimately fails to capture the God who hates evil and calls us to cling to what is good. Remember, being genuine is about aligning with our Creator. Some people live by this mantra. Other people shame people for living by this mantra, and neither of them are being very thoughtful about it. We're failing to love even when we're talking about love. See, both, I think, need to learn afresh to let love be genuine. Love is not love. Human love is not simply an irrefutable reason unto itself, according to the Bible. Love is really complex. And Paul is teaching us it must be genuine. It must be without hypocrisy. It must hate whatever God hates. It must embrace whatever God embraces. In other words, love is not a person of simply becoming and being who a sort of desire. Love actually is a matter of self-denial. It's the opposite of what we often presume. See, self-denial is not a practice for some people. And this is, I think, the rejection of that mantra, love is love, is to say some people need to deny themselves. The Scriptures say we all do. Arthur Rebecca McLaughlin explains that most Christians struggle at times with attractions that, if followed, would lead them into sin. See, following Jesus then is about denying yourself. Salvation and sanctification put to death things within myself, anything within me, that is contrary to the will and way of Jesus. Specifically, the, na- the nature of our conversation, Jesus redefines what love is. And he defines it really, really well in a way that is costly. It's costly to let someone else define love for us, isn't it? Especially in this day and age. I don't want to give that up. That's that's for me. This is really a challenge. Allowing God to define evil and good is unpopular, and I think it takes a ton of courage. Which is the other reason why I think we agree with love but fail to love, because love is really costly. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whew. Loving Jesus means that we forsake all other loves. It doesn't necessarily mean that we abandon all relationships that are precious to us or all friendships that are complicated. Rather, it means that Jesus becomes our central affection through which all other affections fall into subjugation. It means that He is the centerpiece of my life. And in comparison, how central he is, makes it look like I hate my wife, my beloved. It looks like I hate all of you in comparison to how much I love Jesus. This is what Jesus is telling us. That's costly. That's going to cause tension in our community, like in this community. The idea that some need to lay this burden, or or rather shoulder this burden, and others don't is a lie of a lack of contemplation, a lack of taking the word of Jesus, the lack of understanding what love is and what evil is and what good is. We are all meant to love Jesus as the centerpiece of our affections and deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him. And Jesus doesn't just say, that's a good idea that would be helpful. He says, if you don't do that, you're not my disciple. And Jesus has a ton of integrity when it comes to love. You know this? He doesn't just command us to love, He has a ton of integrity when it comes to love. Every Advent season we celebrate that love has not merely been sent in the form of a letter, in a written form, or just spoken over us. We celebrate that love came in the flesh. John 1.14 said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh, love in the flesh. So then in Jesus, we see the fullness of love without hypocrisy, a love which never betrays His heavenly Father. In Jesus, we see the fullest expression of love with truth, a love that hates evil, a love that embraces all that is good. You see, out of love, Jesus abhors evil, so much so that not only did He never sin, but He nailed sin to the cross, That's how much he hates evil. He didn't just avoid it and say, this is just between me and my heavenly Father. He hated what sin was doing to you and what sin was doing to me, what sin was doing to the world, so he nails it to the cross. Colossians chapter 2 Paul told them, he said, And you who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside how? By nailing it to the cross. This is why your sin doesn't own you, because Jesus put it on the cross and he drove a nail through it. This is why your addiction is not your story, because Jesus nailed it to the cross. This is why whatever brokenness you think is going to break you won't, because Jesus nailed it to the cross. He didn't just say, try not to do that tomorrow. He said, I've taken away its power by crucifying it. This is why when you abandon all other loves and take up the love of Jesus, something begins to happen to you because it's not being driven by fear. It's not being driven by evil or your own definition of love and good. It's being driven by Jesus who canceled your written debt on the cross. Evil deceives and it destroys what God loves, namely his people. And so Christ, in Christ, God nailed evil to the cross. Not just our individual sins, but the power of sin. This means that one day sin will be no more. Can you even imagine this world that Jesus is making before our very eyes? Where the evil powers of Satan, sin and death don't prevail but Jesus does. That's what God does to evil. That's the good news for you and I. That's what we must look at every single day and define love through that lens that nails evil to the cross. So if any evil torments you, if any evil has seized you, if, any, if, if you have held fast to any evil in Christ, love in the flesh, God promises to destroy whatever threatens to destroy you. Whatever it is, that's how much he loves you. Because that's his motivation. He's not trying to get you to behave differently. Do you know that? He doesn't cancel sin and nail it to the cross so you act. Because he has a glove, Jesus also held fast to what is good we see this in the, his life but i think most profoundly we see it in his resurrection the resurrection will one day result in the restoration or remaking of the whole world which is not the destruction of the whole world rather it's the reclaiming of creation's original goodness that's what resurrection is it's reclaiming creation's original goodness see when jesus returns the dead in christ will rise we're told in bodily form which is crazy to think about and really awesome, right? And then we'll spend forever in the flesh with God, one another, in what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls the beloved community. This resurrected people then begins to live today in this new resurrection mentality where we cling to what is good, cultivate what is good, so that good rises from the dead, right? So the evil is put to death and good rises from the dead. When God is going to bring heaven and earth together in, as one, and he's saying right now, start that work. He's saying, one one day I'm going to make heaven and earth one, and all shall be well. Can you wait for that day, church, when we don't have to preach and figure out what in the world is going on and exegete the culture and look at the script? We're just going to know complete. He says, now you know in part, then you'll know in whole. You'll have no more questions. Can you imagine the day when you're going to have no more questions? Can I get an amen? You're not, you're not going to worry anymore. You're not going to fear anymore. Why? Because you're going to be present with the incarnate love of your life going to be with Him, and you're going to be like Him. Oh, God, make that day come quickly. But this is what the church gets to work for now and gets to participate in through love by abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. When we do that, resurrection becomes more and more our reality. This changes us today. Here's how scholar N.T. Wright puts it, explains it beautifully, that the point of resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, raising your children, teaching your class, making Excel spreadsheets, whatever it is that you do, will last into God's future. Beastly, he says, a little bit more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. See, in resurrection, Jesus is clinging to the good. He's holding on to the good of this world and bringing about this kingdom of goodness for your good. And to be his people, to be his disciples, to love without hypocrisy, to love with truth, to abhor what's evil, to cling to good is to see heaven come to earth today. See, love without hypocrisy, oh, love fully alive with the truth, rejects and even destroys evil. It's glued to good and even restores the good. That's what Jesus does, not only generally, holistically, but in you and in me. That's what His love is like. He accomplishes all of this by taking on flesh, by dying in the flesh, by rising from the dead in the flesh. It's a costly love. It's a vulnerable love. But it's genuine love. And this is what God has called us to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's no love like this a love that remakes the world, a love that reorders our loves, a love that transforms and heals, a love that's costly, a love that may lead to suffering first before glory. a love that will redefine what love means to us, will clarify what evil is, will clarify what good is. And so, God, we ask that You would do that work in our inward life, and man, as that happens, that Your kingdom will come, Your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we ask, Lord, that that day would make haste. But until it does, help us to live with faithfulness and fruitfulness and joy and love with one another, with our neighbors, with this world, and with you. For your glory, God, our good, we ask the good of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.